This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is James. No. Baby. Uh-uh. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Who are you? You're not. Um, this James. I said my, this, this is your new co-host. Nice to meet you, James. Deep, smooth voice. <laughs> James, it's so nice you could be here. I thought Andrew was going to be on the call. He is on Skype with me but you're here instead but james is here yeah the, i'm in a, i'm off camera with a different microphone oh that explains everything do you like books and the james lit movement is deep fake what books 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 are fine i love book i love a good nothing i love more than a good thick book baby oh boy james <laughs> we're gonna see how well we get on can i talk to andrew real quick <laughs> hello <laughs> Andrew, do Hello? you know who this James guy is? Yeah, he's a cool guy with a smooth voice that's like a good octave and a half deeper than my normal voice is. Has he ever heard the song Smelly Cat? I think James might really enjoy it. Smelly Cat by the friend by the friends? Yeah. By Phoebe from Friends? Uh-huh. Was that was that have to do with it? Well, she had a cold and she sang it and it was sexy. Oh no! I'd see this. I'm not that might uh, be a familiar <laughs> enough. That might be a deeper cut of friends than I am. That than James and I are this familiar is, with. We're doing a really postmodern podcast this week mm-hmm. because every week we talk about a book that one of us has never read before, and we tell you about it. And this week, I read White Noise by Don DeLillo. Mm, white Noise, baby. <laughs> and Andrew brought his alter ego. <laughs> This is what I. This is the weirdest cold I've ever had. I feel a hundred percent totally fine, and I sound like a space alien. Like I don't. I'm a stranger to myself. But, but I don't is, like. I feel. I feel fine. I feel normal. I feel a hundred percent normal and fine. I just sound like this, baby. I can't. It's oh. Oh, James was me the whole time. That explains a lot. Yeah, James was Andrew, and just my voice sounds like this. So, okay, so I'm gonna try and sound normal, and I'm gonna deploy the deep voice when it feels like it would add something to the conversation. <laughs> okay, good. I I am not prepared for this in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the so- reviews in our in our Discord voice chat when we were playing games with some friends the other night were negative yeah we're, we're pretty strongly negative yeah they were so we'll of uh, my deep voice mm-hmm. you know we, we'll give you all the all the tools you can leave reviews on andrew's new voice for us yeah later yeah, please do um andrew this all right all right baby lay it on me what we we're talking about white noise by don delillo who's that <laughs> i'm gonna ask you to tell me a bit in a second i just want to thank robert 
one of our Patreon supporters for recommending. Hey, Robert. For thank reco- you, Bobby. Thanks, Robert, for recommending this book. You didn't really give us much to go on, except you liked Don DeLillo, and you were kind enough to recommend that we read one of the shorter ones. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, Robbo. What do you, you always got our back. What do you know about Don DeLillo, <laughs> Andrew James? Don DeLillo, he was a smooth, well, he is a smooth guy. He's born in 1936. Yeah. I don't know where I was. I was in a cul-de-sac. <laughs> Um, he's an American novelist and writer. Uh, White Noise is his, I believe, eighth novel overall, but yeah. it was his mainstream breakout. Like he had been kind of a genre a genre writer before that. Um, he was born in, like, well, I don't know. People said cult and normally like cult and genre get sort of conflated. Mm, I think but it's more. Yeah, he was known in small saying. circles. He was known in small circles. Yeah, and then he yeah. wrote White Noise, and then everybody was talking about Don DeLillo. <laughs> sure, nonstop. Yeah, couldn't couldn't round a corner without hearing somebody talking about Don DeLillo. <laughs> he was born in New York City to a working class Italian American family. He yeah. became a reader and also a writer during a stint as a parking attendant mm. for a summer job. I have mm. a. That resonated strongly with me because of my weird summer jobs that I had. Um, and yeah, he he became acquainted with the uh, great white American canon during that jaunt. Uh, James Joyce, Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, and Hemingway, yep. all listed as early influences. Uh, he graduated from Fordham University with a communications degree in 1958 and then worked as an ad copywriter for five mad years. Madman. Mad yeah, mad he was a madman. Mad I, I don't know if he knew Don Draper. He didn't talk about whether he the knew Dons, Don Draper. The Dons. The two Dons. Mm, Don DeLillo and Don Draper. Mm. Mm. There's, on, there's only room for one Don in this town, said Don Draper <laughs> to Don DeLillo. Two, the quickening. Yeah. I'm the maddest man in this room. <laughs> Uh, so he quit his job in 1964 because Don Draper told him to, but he says that he quit just to quit, which sounds like him trying to save face to me. Yeah, sure. Um, and he started working on his first novel in 1966. Um, he says of his like timeline as a writer, uh, quote, I wish I had started earlier, but evidently I wasn't ready. First, I lacked ambition. I may have had novels in my head, but very little on paper and no personal goals, no burning desire to achieve some end. Second, I didn't have a sense of what it takes to be a serious writer. It took me a long time to develop this. Okay. So yeah, and then and then he just like wrote a bunch after that. He was the mo- he wrote the most like quantity wise in the 1970s. But White Noise, uh, again, his big mainstream breakout was released in 1985. Um, between the book uh, Mao the Second or Mao Two in yeah. 1991 and um, a uh, Underworld, which I think is 97 or 98, late 90s, um, there's a big gap, like a bigger gap than between many of his other uh, books, but underworld I think is his other really big mainstream success. And then the review reviews of novels since then have been pretty much shorter. Yeah. Less positive. Yeah. Like he, he's still active. He's still, he's still kicking. He's still writing stuff, but yeah. Uh, white noise. And then uh, underworld do seem to be the two big ones. The white noise won the national book award, which is part of why I think no, nobody could stop talking about it. 
Everybody um, was talking about white. Even Don Draper's talking about white yeah. noise. Yeah. Uh, well, Don Draper talking is just a bunch of white noise. Am I right? Um, Whoa. When <laughs> he accepted the award, apparently his acceptance speech was, I'm sorry I couldn't be here tonight, but I thank you all for coming. <laughs> what? Yeah. That's all I said. That's, purportedly, that's all he said. Is that a joke? That's, um, I mean, it has the cadence of a joke, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? He also wrote a book called Libra, which is like a fictional account of Lee, Ar- Lee Harvey Oswald's life. Yes, I, I had I had uh, noted that one as well. Um, sure. Yeah. I've like, read a bunch of the, what is that, the Warren Report, and then mm-hmm. kind of just went to town, made a bunch of people real mad, <laughs> like you do. Um, and yeah, this, this book, what else did I want to say? They're going to make a movie out of it. So he had a movie, Cosmopolis was made into a movie in 2012. Um, and then people have been trying to make this into a movie. The monsters from Monsters, Inc. live? I don't know, actually. Cosmopolis. They live in Monsteropolis. Oh, okay. Um, it's a similar sort of, they got the (laughs) opolis. You got the Opolis right now. I can hear it in your voice. Mm, yeah, um, mm, the, they did filming for the adaptation of this book, uh, I think, this this year or last year. It's going to star Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig. It's directed by the guy who made that Marriage Story movie, so I bet Adam Driver's going to punch a wall or something. Uh, yeah, a bunch of just yelling and stuff, probably. There wasn't too much yelling in this book by the main no. characters anyway, so... <laughs> Who knows? Adam Driver can do something other than yell. I'm sure. I'm, I'm, Maybe. I'm sure I've know. seen him do it. I don't. I don't buy it. We'll get frankly. there. Um, but yeah, I come everything this... I've seen him in. He's very sulky and mad all the time. <laughs> that will. That yeah. That will probably actually work out okay. Um, mm. I had never read any Delillo before. Have you read any Delillo, Andrew? No, I, I've never. I've never encountered this this fella. Yeah, my exposure to him prior was like reading when i was in my early 20s and reading a lot of david foster wallace and he would write essays and be like i like don delillo like that's, <laughs> that that was my exposure and so as we talk about this book i think my own expectations for what it was gonna be were maybe like a little off but then as i spent the day thinking about the book Maybe I was I just had like the wrong flavor of postmodern ready to go. Okay. Maybe hmm. I was six, you know I was still getting gelato, but I thought I was getting chocolate and I got coffee. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let's take a quick break while you ponder that metaphor and then Yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna think about it really hard. <laughs> Please do. We'll be right okay. back. Bye. Craig, it's yeah. me, James, and I, I've never, I've never heard anything about any of the show's financial sponsors before. So I've really been looking forward to this segment. James, do you, you told me earlier that you like books? Is that true? Uh, yes. You weren't lying Definitely. earlier. No, I was telling, I was telling the truth, baby. James always tells the truth. Great, James. Let me tell you a truth about the show, Book Dreams. It's a show for everyone who loves books and misses English class. James, in each episode, co-hosts Julie Sternberg and Evie Halem explore all sorts of book-related topics. James, you like book topics? Oh, I love books. have to have topics. (laughs) 
good. Their most recent episode does feature a topic of conversation. They talk to Tom Lin and they talk about his debut novel about a Chinese-American gunslinger in the 1860s. And they pry apart the mythology of the American Western and talk about other contemporary authors doing the same. What do you feel about Westerns, James? Mm, a little, uh, little far west for old James. Well, I like I like Easterns. You don't have to travel far to get <laughs> book dreams because it's brought to you by the Podglomerate and new episodes run every Thursday and you can listen by subscribing to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show, James. Doesn't that sound great? That sounds amazing. Please the check fu- out. The f- truly, the future has arrived. It has in book dreams. Mm hmm. Now, James, I just yes. told you about some dreams, but do you ever have nightmares? Uh, I've never had a nightmare. It's too seems like a hassle. It's really troubling. Nightmares aren't great. Uh, and if you do ever have one, James, I hope that you have someone that you can talk to about it. Um, mm. But if I you talk don't... To my, talk to my buddy, Andrew. Okay, you could talk to Andrew, but if he's not available, I encourage you to talk to our sponsor, BetterHelp, uh, which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can send them a message at any time, and you can schedule like weekly video or phone sessions that work in your schedule and are easy to get to and, and you know have those conversations about your nightmares. The service is available for clients worldwide, and as I said, James, you can find expertise that matches your needs. So as a listener, and I guess as a co-host james you'll get 10 percent off your first we'll uh, we'll have to talk about my cut of this (laughs) oh okay we're not allowed to talk about that yet but our listeners can get 10 percent off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash overdue join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health again that's betterhelp better h-e-l-p.com slash overdue thank you for your help james you're you're very welcome Craig, speaking of speaking of bits that are holding up really well, why don't we do another episode of our book podcast? A whole nother and episode? You, and you tell me about Don DeLillo's White Noise. We're doing we're starting a new episode right now. Tell me about the book White Noise. We talked about the author. That Andrew told me talk about the author, advertisements, and then book time. Okay. James. Mm-hmm. Who yes. I, oh God, this bit. Do you like <laughs> do you like books good. that are mostly characters and vibes? Uh it's uh, mostly I need a plot. I do would you, like I would like reasons to turn the page. Okay. That's what gets James out of bed in the morning. Well, I think in this that book his job. <laughs> this book the reason to turn the page is is mostly the vibes. So we're going to have to talk about that. How much do you enjoy reading satire that's like sort of funny, but not really haha funny? Um, That's pretty good. Yeah. And hey, Andrew's back. I got tired of doing that. James. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> uh, how cool are you pondering American cultural decline in a post-Vietnam war or Reagan era mindset, but also not too much has changed, except it all needs to like map to the internet now? Yeah, like that, that I feel like just bums me out because of how prescient it was and how little any of like people did a lot of a lot of art about commercialism yeah and, like 
the decline of the American empire and stuff. And like nobody who needed to heed any of that, he didn't. Yeah. He did it. <laughs> he did it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And now we're where we are. We are where we are. Yeah. That's kind of what this book was for me is like, okay, so it comes out in 85. Like yep. we've, we've just, just like me. In, oh, we've just inaugurated <laughs> uh, Reagan for the second time. And five? Yeah. yeah. No, didn't he win in 82? No, he won in 80. No, no, you're right. You're right. Man, why do I always think that? No, you're right. You're right. You're right. Because you don't believe that George Bush was a president or something. No, it's easy to forget him. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've just inaugurated Reagan a second time. We're, you know, over a de- we're coming off the real resounding success of the Vietnam War. And we're just really living through an age where it feels proud to be an American. Mm-hmm. And Don DeLillo isn't sure how free we are of anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially the fear of death, which is really what this book is about. Yeah, so I read a few different sort of ideas about what the title is in reference to one uh the kirkus review says that white noise is the fear of death Uh um the new york the new york times review by jane ann phillips says that white noise is sort of it's more the like the numbness of of living in american culture so um uh, what, the white noise includes the ever-present sound of expressway traffic. Uh, television is in there. Advertising is in there. Um, white noise includes the bold print of tabloids, those amalga- amalgams of American <laughs> magic and dread with their comforting mechanism of offering a hopeful twist to apocalyptic events. Uh, fast food and quad cinemas contribute to the melody, as do automated teller machines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... Uh, and nowhere is Mr. DeLillo's take on the endlessly distorted re- religious underside of American consumerism better illustrated than in the passage on supermarkets. So like some there's like a little bit of that that feels a little old man yells at cloud. And then the rest of it is like, well, yes, still. Yeah, it feels <sighs> ATMs <laughs> to get upset about those. No, no, like, it's not. a No, I, I wouldn't interpret that quote as saying that he's upset about them. And I, there's at least one essay that I read that I don't have the link in front of me. I can't cite it where they were saying, like, there's a read on this book you can take that is DeLillo doing old man yells at cloud for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also do uh guy operating on a real, real strange wavelength trying to guide us through to the other side. Like there is like a the other car- side of American culture yeah. or what's the, the other, other side? side of this, okay. you know, ever like omnipresent nihilism and fear and de- moral decay. I suppose. Cool. Yes. Awesome. Um, and I think the other thing, so the book was, uh, when it was being edited, I think it was called Panasonic, uh, which I think <laughs> the company who owns like Panasonic, the they yeah. said you can't do that, but yeah. uh, I think it has to do, it's like, you know, all-encompassing noise or something yeah. is the mm-hmm. idea there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one title, it was uh, almost, they were kicking around just calling it Mein Kampf. 
um, which is relevant to the subject of the novel, don't think they should have or would have actually done that. No, and I don't, I know Google didn't exist. It was like 11 years from existing. It's yeah. wild how much closer 1985 is to the existence of Google than 2021 is. Yeah, yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, would have made this book tricky to look to look up <laughs> yeah really because there's another book there's another book called that there really is another book called that mm-hmm. uh, i'll explain why in just a second that that i mean related it, you know sometimes you see like a bad movie or a bad title or something and you think about all the walls of people whose job it is to say no to ideas like mm, that uh-huh. and this is this is an example of the like we don't get to see every time that that wall of people works but when a bunch of people told Don DeLillo, no, you can't call your book Mein Kampf, like, yes, those are the gatekeepers doing what they're there for. I want a 99% Invisible episode on the people who did a good thing when they said no to something. Like, yeah. all of the invisible no's that have yeah. helped us mm-hmm. along the way. Um, so we're talking about the late 20th century. It's like america what are we doing here energy um where we're supposed to be this like we hadn't won the cold war yet but i think it was pretty clear that we were going to one country's nuclear plants were immolating and (laughs) another another's were merely breaking down (laughs) you know uh um but we're supposed to be this like shining city on the hill but also the empire of evil is still out there kind of thing Mm -hmm. and you're right andrew like this has been people have been telling this type of story for a long time and it does feel trite now to trot it out like earnestly even though i don't think that that is always true um but this book isn't really earnest so maybe that is what makes it okay there's a lot of reasons why people might bounce off this book and I'm kind of front loading that because then we'll just get into the vibes of this book and then people can take it or leave it. But like the dialogue in this book is purposefully awkward and most of the people talk in ways that normal people like normal realistic quote unquote dialogue would never sound that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's an unfair expectation to put on a book that is trying to like through heightened circumstances, satirize the American experience. Like, uh-huh. people aren't people aren't just gonna like talk like they text in this book like it's just not that's a whole whatever um <laughs> they the plot there's not a plot there's a there's a part in the middle of the book where stuff happens and it's i wouldn't say exciting but it is life-threatening and dismaying and then there's the third part of the book where like a plot happens in a way that almost feels like it's a commentary on the idea of a plot. Uh, (laughs) And if you hear that and go, I don't want that book, like that's fine. You don't have to read it. It is just a, that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Me me and Craig and James are all here to do that work for you. So let me start at the beginning. Like it's always, I want, I wanted to, so I had two potential, entry points one more vibey and one yeah. more like character anchored is i the two things came up when i was reading uh contemporary reviews of the book which you asked me to do please um from the that new york times review 
um, uh, Phillips says that the book is, is, uh, it's obsessed with, uh, quote, totally American concerns. It's rendering of a particularly American numbness. And then the other thing that people talk a lot about is the household that the main characters are in. So it's, it's our main character whose name, you know, I bet. (laughs) That was a good toss. Jack Gladney. Jack yeah. Gladney. And his wife and then their four kids from yeah. each of their previous marriages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Which which in and of itself feels like kind of an 80s. Yeah, we're post Brady because, Bunch, divor- but we're getting into messy still, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Divor- divorce is still becoming less taboo. And so it's still uh, like... I didn't know this, Andrew. I looked this up the other day because I'm we're rewatching the Americans right now, and yes, yes. we mm-hmm. just recently watched the episode where uh, they like trial separate, where Philip moves out, mm-hmm. and like I think I saw a chart where the divorce rate in America like actually peaked in like eighty or eighty one or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you're like, then you see the next ten to fifteen years of like cultural stories wrestling with us like a generation of kids grow up and yeah just all all these kids and all these 80s and 90s novels being the children of divorce yeah but like it's it's it there's a to have the characters be divorced in a mid 80s novel i feel like is meant to like it's meant to register more than necessarily would in a book that's written now we see multiple exes in the book like um the other parents of these kids like crop up throughout the story and none of them have a plot because the book only sort of has a plot but like they kind (laughs) of kind of swing through and they have a scene or one of the main characters talks about them for a little bit um and so you get this picture of like yes it is this it, it is this blended family that lives in this household but it is also this incredibly fragmented family where you know I think the one, the oldest son, Heinrich, his mom, like, has changed her name and is living in an ashram in Montana. And then another parent is, like, living in Australia and another works for the CIA and no one knows where she is. Like, (laughs) it is kind of, it is, and yet they, like, resonate throughout the book in these little beats. Um, So... Yeah, the family unit. Like, let's start there. The family unit is okay, an, sure. is an interesting part of the book. And as I was reading reactions to it, people are like, "I don't. Are these characters likable? I don't know if I <laughs> like this family or if they feel connected to each other." And it's like, well, to that's the point, and that feels like a cop out, but it is the well, unlikable as a whole. They loaded. I found term them in yeah. of itself anyway. I found them very interest. I found most of them pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I think they are often like they have a lot of friction or like reasons to be like, I don't want to spend more time with this person, but the book is making <laughs> me, and I have to kind of wrestle with that. So we've got Jack mm-hmm. Gladney. He's our protagonist. Um, I think. His given name is Jack Gladney, but he adopts a uh, a three initial like initialist like J dot A dot K when he takes this position. So Jack though, still? yeah, it's still Jack. Okay. Um, and he is the distinguished professor of Hitler studies 
at the otherwise unnamed College on the Hill in the town of Blacksmith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe so that I, I was reading about the film and they were doing a bunch of photography in Ohio. It gives me big, like, Denison Kenyon Worcester vibes. Yeah, small, small... Uh, ostensibly prestigious, but no one's ever heard of them. Yes. outside of certain circles, liberal, yeah, liberal arts it, colleges. Sorry, Kenya. <laughs> well, it, sorry it, to it, describe <laughs> you. Sorry to describe you in this disparaging and yet completely accurate way, Kenyon. It feels, uh, and it feels like it feels like that, like class of American private colleges that are modeled off of all the tiny ones in Massachusetts, but they had to move to Ohio because it was cheaper. Um, yeah, or they had like religious agendas yeah <laughs> something like that um, yeah and so he, the, the the new ivies yes he suggests- the 99 invisible episode about the princeton review website and these colleges in like the early to mid 2000s yeah i mean i would i, I would, would like just- to i would like to know about the branding exercises involved <laughs> in Kenyon and denison like I don't know, attracting people like us. I would and making take them pay a lot of money to go. I to would take in the a full if this if this white noise episode is it's gonna be me requesting ninety nine percent invisible episodes. Yeah. Um I want a full episode on the USA like whatever those like college ranking things are. And then yeah. I and then Roman will go to the ad and then he'll come back and he'll dive deep into the new Ivies. Like it mm-hmm. didn't fit in the full story, but mm-hmm. they'll have like an extra conversation. To humor us, which would be nice. <laughs> which is really what podcasts need to be doing. Yeah, it's all a bunch. Us. It's all a bunch of white noise. Uh, if not us specifically, then our demographic. <laughs> yes. Uh, so he, to quote, I suggested to the chancellor that we might build a whole department around Hitler's life and work, and he was quick to see the possibilities. It was an immediate and electrifying success. <laughs> the chancellor went on to serve as advisor to Nixon, Ford, and Carter before his death on a ski lift in Austria. So, uh. The Hitler Studies program is, <laughs> yeah, you're laughing at it. You're right to laugh at it. That's the point. Um, it is very, uh, it seems both shallow, or at least Gladney's approach was, I can call it this, and Hitler's this like idea. It's not just a guy. He yeah, is right. this idea of evil and violence and world importance and so like let's just make a thing about that and then anybody mm-hmm. who wants to learn about it will have to come here first at least for like a decade until other schools have their own hitler studies programs right which will happen which is what will happen gonna be johnny hitler seed i'm gonna wander the nation starting hitler studies now, programs at all these little liberal arts colleges we uh we get we don't see a lot of Hitler studies classes, and if you come to this book accepting uh, expecting it to be like a small college, uh, let's spend a lot of time in academia, that doesn't quite happen. There's like two or three scenes in the cafeteria where we get some buffoonery with professors, um, and then we spend a lot of time with this other professor, this visiting guy, Murray, mm-hmm. but a lot of the the you know, the satire of this type of academia is um, 
What does he say? We were quartered in Centenary Hall, a dark brick structure we share with the Popular Culture Department, known officially as American Environments. The teaching staff is composed almost solely of New York emigres, smart, thuggish, movie-mad, trivia-crazed. They are here to decipher the natural language of the culture to make a formal method of the shiny pleasures they'd known in their Europe-shadowed childhoods, an Aristotelianism (laughs) of bubblegum wrappers and detergent jingles. Uh, And Murray goes on to say there are full professors in this place who read nothing but cereal boxes so it's this like (laughs) super heightened american studies department that is the like you know the worst of we're gonna devote an entire remember on tours for kenyan when they'd be like this kid there was one kid who majored in coffee who majored in coffee yeah they'd really play up like the one time it had ever happened (laughs) yeah this feels like that where the these professors have found a way to carve their own you know salaries and cultural niches um out of what you might consider trivia and he has done that but with hitler yeah, I guess like congratulations or like I, I I wish I could be mad, but mostly I'm just impressed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a there's like a critique there where it's uh, all of this stuff is being like balkanized and uh, siloed as opposed to being in conversation with mm-hmm. other things. Sure. But the Hitler thing is criticized as being incredibly shallow because mm. uh, Gladney doesn't speak any German. And he is rushing to learn German before this big international Hitler studies conference in a few months that's going to be at the college. I don't think that's going to work. It, do- it really doesn't. It, like, he, we watch him have a few classes. He writes a five minute speech in which he uses a lot of words that sound the same in English and German. Oh, boy. Oh, uh, no. Because the guy who's teaching him. How to speak German at one point has to literally reach into his mouth to figure out why his tongue won't make the sounds right. It's that kind of stuff, uh, Andrew. Oh no! Yeah, it's I'm bad. just like I am. I have sympathy, humiliation. Yeah. Yes. Um. And so when we come around to the end of the book, I'll talk about the the case that this book lays out for like why he latched onto Hitler. But suffice to say, if you think it's a bad idea, it is, and it is a lampoon of a bunch of different stuff. So I mean, I've got and and you know, I gotta imagine the reason why it's Hitler is a little bit the same as the reason why you might try to name your book Mein Kampf. It's just like, well, this will get him talking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's kind of it's a meta title. And that's that that's kind of that's yeah. kind of cynical view of it, but I don't yeah. also don't think it's totally wrong. No, and I and I don't think Delillo would balk at that reasoning. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, okay, so he is married to Babette, who. Uh, it's a great name. Um, and she does, she's like got a couple things going on. She's into running. She teaches a class to older citizens in the town on posture. It's not a yoga class. It's just kind (laughs) of teaching old people how to stand with better posture. It's implied that it's part of like, you know, the cultural neuroses of trying to ward off death. Okay. Um, 
she also regularly visits with this older guy in town uh who is blind and has asked someone to come read to him and she he has asked her exclusively to read supermarket tabloids so a lot of <laughs> like ufos that, like what kind of what kind of tabloids are we talking about like bat boy yeah it's bat boy it's conspiracy theory stuff it's ufos um probably some chemtrails mm-hmm. you know that kind I of stuff i just don't know what tabloids wrote about before like Brad and Jen and Hillary Clinton were things that you could talk about. That's true. That's very true. Cause I, I think the first <laughs> time I read like a, a national Enquirer was like middle school uh-huh. and it was like Clinton stuff and bat boy. So yeah, <laughs> who knows? Listen, what are, those, right and listen, are, the, are those two separate subjects? Mm. I don't know that they are. Mm. Oh my God. Um, and they have a, Okay, so they've both been married before. In my recollection, he has definitely been married multiple times. I don't remember how many times she's been married. Um, they have a, what on the surface, seems like a fine relationship. Okay. They have a very active sex life, though nice. the first time we hey, encounter them. Hey, this is, this is James. Hi, James. That sounds, that sounds real nice. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, James, is it is it nice when... He asks her to read to him something sexy like, you know, anthropological texts about the 1200s or something about or like the Etruscans. Is that well, I mean, do it for you, James? They hadn't invented the Internet yet. So people just had to yeah. improvise. And James thinks James thinks that's real cool. Cool. James, do you think it's hot when they like have conversations about which one of them thinks they're going to die first? In in the context of sexual congress or No, but like it kind of sometimes interrupts their sexual congress like they filibuster mm. the congress with talk about <laughs> who's going to die first. I mean, I think that's a normal thing to talk about sometimes, but not in that context and not no all the time <laughs> not all, no 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 um so it is like healthy in the sense that they are routinely intimate with each other um but it, it does feel like it is setting us up for some of the stuff that happens later in the book where it okay. doesn't work out but mm-hmm. yeah they it is remarked upon it becomes a big focus in the third act of the book this who is going to die first who is who will be able to live without the other person. And it's not even done in this like romantic way. They're just scared of it. (laughs) And uh, I was rereading earlier parts for, to like pull some quotes and stuff. And it like, it's seated at that point. And I don't think I had clocked it as I was going through for it to be as important as it was to the rest of the book. But Mm -hmm. they, she is the other thing to know about her from the first third of the book, which is really a lot of character vibes and and setting things up. She is forgetting things. It is unclear why maybe she's taking some medication that she doesn't remember. Uh, Mm. But she is like forgetting things, both little and big, like forgetting that her daughter, Steffi likes to actually be called Stephanie or no it's re- not, reverse it's not, that reverse that it's yeah. not pitched as like a cognitive decline it's pitched as something more nefarious than that it's uh it's pitched as something to be worried about but also pitched as something that she is not being honest about at the same time okay sure sure yeah sure. um and so they have four kids that live with them 
as we talked about, it's a blended family. Heinrich, who is 14 and has a receding hairline nice. and is very intense and combative and sort of nihilistic, but also very precocious. Um, he got the name Heinrich from his Hitler professor dad because maybe it would like give him some power and authority in a generation where everyone's being named Steve and Kim or whatever. Uh, mm, I feel like that that bestows <laughs> that bestows continued authority on Hitler and his <laughs> regime in a way that I'm not totally comfortable with. Yeah, at one point the that that comes up in a conversation I think with Denise, the 11 year old daughter who is calling uh, Gladney out on naming him Heinrich. Yeah, like, why did you do that? Um, De- Denise is. Kind of a busybody, and I, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but like the, her function in the book is to be curious about the other characters and really involved in their business, such that she is the one who first uh, supposes that Babette is maybe taking something and not being straight about it. Okay. Um, so in later parts of the book, it's her and Jack kind of digging into this mystery of whatever this medication is. Mm-hmm. We get Steffi, who is the nine-year-old daughter, who is, uh, we know she's sensitive because during their weekly watch the TV, eat Chinese food and watch TV sessions, she <laughs> uh, is, quote, like mortally embarrassed by if someone is like being embarrassed on TV, she can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's just... I. I imagine that if Steffi were a real person today, she would not be able to handle like cringe stuff. Like she couldn't. Yeah, really no, truck. I don't think so. Be, no, I don't know tough. if she to, would. Yeah. Tough to watch The Office U.S. or The Office U.K. <laughs> You're right. Or or most of Succession. Yeah. Oh boy. Also, she likes to uh, to she likes the smell of burnt toast, and okay. so regularly in the book that someone's like, "Oh, Steffi's just burning toast in the kitchen. Sounds good." Sounds like Steffi's down there smelling some toasts. There would be a house where you were wondering if you were having a stroke all the time, probably. I don't think that is far off from what Dillo's up to. Okay. Uh, Dillillo, not Dillo. Dillo, our, our proud Dillo. Our, our proud Dillo. Um, and then the youngest, Wilder, who is a toddler, full of simple pleasures. Um, he's very observant, and he kind of calms people down just by his presence, which I think is because he cannot conceive of death. Okay. And the characters in the book who are terrified of death uh, love Wilder because he doesn't know what it is. That's kind of... Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Now I'm going to think think about that a lot. I know. I mean, Uh, I already think a lot about the cares that Henry doesn't have. uh Uh-huh. And how determined i am to keep him from having them for as long as possible yes uh Uh, okay um there's a very uh like high stakes chapter where he just cries for seven hours with no explanation okay and he's a little old that that age is a little old for that kind of behavior exactly yeah um and so they take him to the doctor and the doctor's like he's crying i don't know what you want (laughs) because it's a doctor in the 80s i guess good doctor Um, uh, and it just is like it drives home how important he is to particularly the adults in the family that like he can't change like he needs to stay the same because otherwise that means time is passing and they're gonna die which is just yeah. you know <laughs> uh-huh um 
if you want to get a sense of who Heinrich is, uh, let me just give you a few snippets here because he becomes a pretty big character in the book. Uh, at one point, Jack comes home in the second part of the book and finds him sitting like out a window with binoculars. He's wearing his camouflage jacket and cap quote an outfit with complex meaning for him at 14 struggling to grow and to escape notice simultaneously mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and he that, is that feels real but huh he is very exacting and likes to drive his father kind of nuts with like doesn't feel like it'd be too hard no and <laughs> you know at one point they're in the car and Heinrich is like, oh, they said it was going to rain, and it's like literally raining right then. Mm-hmm. And Jack's like, well, they, you know, it's raining now. And he's like, but they said it was going <laughs> to rain later. And they get in this uh, this argument about the nature of truth. Um, Jack says, he's holding the gun to your head. He wants your truth. What good is my truth? My truth means nothing. What if this guy with a gun comes from a planet in a whole different solar system? What we call rain, he calls soap. What we call apples, he calls rain. What am I supposed to tell him? And Jack says, his name is Frank J. Smalley, and he comes from St. Louis. <laughs> he goes, he wants to know if it's raining now at this very minute, here and now. That's right. Is there such a thing as now? Like, imagine the two-year-old version or the you know, three or four-year-old who's like, why, why, why? Except he's a 14-year-old who's like, what is truth? What is our objective reality? There isn't yeah, one. Sounds fun. At Henry's one- going through a phase where he likes to say no a lot, but he doesn't know what it means. <laughs> And so he'll just sit there with you and go and say no. And then you say yes. And he'll say no, yes, no, yes, over and over again. Uh, I think he got it's It's funny to watch him start bringing stuff home from kids at school because I know he got that from one of the twins at daycare. Sure, sure. Um, I, has, has Henry ever asked you who knows what anyone wants to do? Isn't it all a question of brain chemistry? Yeah, he has asked me that actually. That's what Heinrich says at one And point. he asked he also has asked me stuff about like why capital is always uh, oppressing the proletariat and stuff like good. that. Good. Okay, good. I'm glad that. A lot that of good he's like woke toddlers doing stuff. his reading. Yeah, of mm-hmm. course. Um so this family exists and they're a mess. And they part of what makes them extra messy is they are just as the book portrays it, they're just inundated with things that isolate them and things that fill their brain um, so that they can't think on their... Not that they can't think on their own, but just that, like, there's just stuff in their head all the time that they yeah. didn't put there. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things the book does to drive this home is uh, randomly in the middle of a paragraph, it'll just do a paragraph break. Like, in the middle of a, of a scene, it'll just do a paragraph break and just give you a line that's emanating from the TV. And I don't know, I don't think you guys do this. Laura and I probably do this more than you do in that we just like have the TV on during the day. Yeah, y'all y'all are TV lever honors. Yeah. And like, so this was kind of hitting me a little bit where it's like in the middle of a scene, uh, Delilah would just say like, and then coming from the TV, if it breaks easily into pieces, it's called shale. It is called shale. When wet, it smells like clay. Or uh, they're like in the car and the radio in the middle of a scene just says available for a limited time only with optional megabyte hard disk. Ooh, a megabyte. Let's sit half Lotus and think about our spines. And it's like, it's always an on sequitur. 
it always serves like a rhythmic purpose in the scene, but it is also reminding you that just like there's just stuff bombarding them. It is literally the white noise of yeah of American capitalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we also in the first part meet this this guy Murray, who is a visiting professor at the college. There's a scene where he's trying to get his Elvis course off the ground, oh and he wants Jack to come in and like. But lend. he's having an easier time of it than the Hitler guy. No, the Hitler guy is fully established at this point. Whoa. He's like running this wonderful big department, and so Murray's like, "Hey, can you come and like you know bring your Hitler energy into the room and like." <laughs> legitimize my elvis class mm-hmm. and they do this weird like it's not quite a rap battle but they just exchange lines about how each either elvis or hitler was really into their mom and like then it becomes this monologue of gladney's about how hitler's mom's birthplace became a site of tourism and crowds formed and that's sort of like how crowds form around any person that we bestow meaning upon and the meaning doesn't have an inherent value it's just the fact that we're paying them attention uh-huh. and you know and you've sounds a little uh uh laborious it is <laughs> it is laborious um but murray is like the one of the few people in the book who is like listen this tv stuff is everywhere and it is kind of infecting our brains but also like the only way out is he's the one who's like the only way out is through like okay he says it in some like kind of kooky we have to decode the symbols language (laughs) but he the meaning is this stuff is out there it's probably inescapable i think a generous reading is like what if media literacy though like what if Mm -hmm. we actually thought about what was happening around us Mm -hmm. um so the big plot thing that happens in this book, Andrew, the one thing I would say this is the thing that I, it would certainly popped for me as the most interesting event of the book. Sure. The middle. And this is this is in a book that you did open up saying like it doesn't really have a lot of events. In no, it. it's not. A, it's not event driven. No, it's not. Okay. Um, the middle third of the book is called the airborne toxic event. Okay. And a train crashes outside of this college town and a plume of smoke enters the air. Okay. And first on the radio they call it a feathery plume and then it becomes <laughs> a so pleasant a black billowing cloud mm-hmm. and then they start calling it the airborne toxic event. Okay. So I mean it's like living in South Philadelphia then. <laughs> Unfortunately between the uh the chemical refinery plant fire that and, trying to shut down yep. and like the uh the lightly controlled trash fires yep, yep. yeah so again prescience rather than tightness <laughs> um it is the thing that's in the air is something the book calls niadine derivative or niadine d mm-hmm. and heinrich saw a movie about it in school about them testing it on rats and it had all sorts of terrible symptoms i bet and so over the course of a few chapters we learn that you know we learn of the different symptoms that start with like skin irritation and sweaty palms and then to like heart palpitations and deja vu and then like you know miscarriages and comas and stuff yikes and 
the way that those manifest in the book and like it's this what is reality kind of thing where the girls in the family are like oh my god i have sweaty palms oh my god i'm nauseous but they're always a symptom behind from what the radio is saying the symptoms are now okay so it's you know uh jack finds himself wondering like is are they just like kind of responding to what they think yeah you know it's yeah. that kind of thing and whatever and they whatever you call that power suggestion or, you know, effect yeah yeah, yeah the secret um, and, <laughs> yeah, that's what it is uh <laughs> and it becomes an evacuation scenario in this tiny town but of course uh these people don't believe it because they you know live their comfortable professor upper middle class life mm-hmm. and there's a direct quote that was pretty uh interesting this is all from gladney these things happen to poor people who live in exposed areas society is set up in such a way that it's the poor and the uneducated who suffer the main impact of natural and man-made disasters people Mm -hmm. in low-lying areas get the floods people in shanties get the hurricanes and tornadoes i'm a college professor did you Mm -hmm. ever see a college professor rowing a boat down his own street in one of those tv floods we live in a neat and pleasant town near a college with a quaint name these things don't happen in places like blacksmith i just made a note for myself to say that that that's a real impressive portrait of being morally wrong and factually right the this whole passage is like that and the note about tv floods is really important the other like major tv thread in this book is like there's a lot of lust for disaster porn Mm-hmm. Like at one point in the book, the f- Heinrich runs into the room and is like, plane crash footage, plane crash footage. And they all rush to the TV to watch a plane crash. Jeez. Um, and this, I feel like this is before the golden age of, of cinema disaster porn, yeah. mm-hmm. which comes about a decade or so after this. Roland Emmerich had not really perfected his art when yes. this book was written no. of blowing up the Eiffel Tower or whatever exactly it is that he does. Yeah. Um, and so throughout this whole section where they are being evacuated to this Boy Scouts camp and then they're in this big parade of cars while there's this horrifying smoke monster from Lost in the sky uh, and he has to get out of the car to fill it up with gas so he's outside for two and a half minutes which comes up later and they think he's he keeps it a secret for a period of time, but like he's probably going to die at some point. Um, We're all going to die at some point. Well, exactly, Andrew. You hit up the. That's the point of the book because he's like <laughs> he. They go to this uh, like shelter, and you know his Heinrich really like takes off as this kid who has been digesting all the news stories and is like telling trying to give people as much information as possible and he's coming into his own and there's like a Jehovah's Witness there talking about the end of the world and then there's a guy who's helping run the shelter who works for what I think is called Simuvac which is like simulated evacuation disaster stuff Mm -hmm. and he's talking to Gladney and he's like hey uh, this is sort of like this this real world toxic event is prepping us for future simulations that we need to run to practice for future toxic evacuation events. Mm-hmm. But it kind of sucks that we didn't get to plan enough because it's real and all. And that that kind of relationship between uh, properly planning for the real thing and the real thing being an obstacle to actually experiencing it crops up a lot. 
Um, but he punches Gladney's stuff into a computer and he's like, interesting. This will probably kill you. It's going to live in your body for 30 years. We'll know more in 15 years because then you'll have made it halfway and you'll know more than we do now. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Great help. Wonderful wow. help. Yeah. Right. Um, and the end, that whole, the end of that passage is a, they're cooped up in an abandoned karate studio uh, to get away from the black cloud. And a guy is walking around the room with a blank television screen, proselytizing about how they're not getting any media coverage of the disaster that they are living through. Mm-hmm. And it's, Why is the media talking about this big black cloud? Well, it's, it's not... <laughs> It's not pitched with the air of conspiracy theory. It's pitched with the, um, are aren't we meaning? Isn't our experience meaningful enough to be part of the news? Yeah. Um, and it's crowded out by there's too much stuff going on. Probably like good stuff, bad stuff. Like is is it being crowded out by the minutia white noise, or is it being crowded out I, by other bad things? I think the implication is that it's being crowded out by minutia white noise, but you're not wrong to point out that other characters in the book when they're talking about this whole like need for disaster stuff um is also talking about how like they need to get bigger for for them to cap capture our attention because it happens all the time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so then he is now confronted with his fear of death because it's literally inside of him and he's trying to solve the mystery of what was going on with his wife babette and it is a mystery that she answered an ad in one of the tabloids for a drug that could make you not fear death anymore. Mm, okay. That's very that's a very specific thing yeah. to promise that you uh-huh. can do. And it's she... almost like you're trying to use it to make a point and you're not <laughs> you're not <laughs> <full>. <laughs> uh, so she winds up um in a quote capitalist transaction she says offering her body to this guy in a motel room so that he will give her these pills because the study was canceled and so he's going to do it on the down low with her uh and jack's response is not only to be mad that she had an affair but also that he wants those pills he wants the pills he wants to not be scared to death anymore yeah and the end of the 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 like the freight train that is the end of the book is like a a mix of jealous lover revenge story and guy desperately searching for a MacGuffin plot, yeah, mm-hmm. which is kind of I think purposefully unsatisfying. Like it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't actually resolve in the way that any of the characters want it to. And it okay. leaves it very messy and it ends on, you know, them watching these weird sunsets uh, that may or may not be a result of the chemical cloud and people still going to the supermarket, but they're disoriented because the supermarket aisles got rearranged, but it's mm-hmm. okay because they'll always be in the supermarket getting the consumer goods they need and they can just read the news in the tabloids what? until they die. Okay. So like... It's a book. <laughs> it sure does sound like it. Why do you think the Hitler thing, Andrew? So based on what I've told you about like some of the other stuff that happens in this book, why Hitler? 
I mean, I, I was reading. So um, he is quoted in brief at the bottom of that New York Times mm-hmm. review that I've referenced a couple of times. And um, and he, DeLillo, is saying basically it's like he's looking for something that's big enough to like just make him feel. Um, he says, I never set out to write an apocalyptic an apocalyptic an apocalyptic novel it's about death on the individual level only hitler is large enough and terrible enough to absorb and neutralize jack gladney's obsessive fear of dying a very common fear but one that's rarely talked about jack uses hitler as a protective device he wants to grasp anything he can yeah that's it i I was i'm glad i could come with a like a this is the this is the one answer I was honestly surprised that answer is also in the book. Like, yeah. Murray says, some people are larger than life. Hitler's larger than death. You thought he would protect you. I understand completely. Um, submerge me, you said. Absorb my fear. Uh, and I was honestly... It happens pretty late in the book. And I was very surprised that Delilah was like, no, this is, this is why I did this absurd choice. <laughs> like, I needed to pick a thing that a character who has the worst fear of like the biggest fear of death that I can conjure, what could he balance that with? Yeah. Like if you want to have a, a, like a more wide ranging, how does this make you feel sort of open-ended discussion? Then Mm -hmm. like it bums me out that 40 years, 35 years out from this book being published, like the bigness of, of Hitler has been, diluted in a way almost it's it's not that he's not big it's just that some people think that the lesson of hitler and fascism and nazi germany is don't do genocide and some people think it's don't do public health measures yeah and it sucks yeah Mm -hmm. and it sucks that we don't agree on the objective truth of don't do genocide yeah of like that being why people know who hitler is still anyway in the first place i don't know i expected the book from the first third to actually spend more time undercutting the academic art like part of it the fact that it would be this like successful department at a university well and even to like to juxtapose it with the elvis thing like it seems it seems custom made to make academia seem silly and aloof and sort of out of touch with things and that that is in the book Mm -hmm. but there's way more time devoted to the fear of death stuff and to the Conf- when, when confronted with a potentially apocalyptic event that might cause you to think about your fear of death, the like how misinformation spreads and how, where, how and where we get information and the uh, ability of media to c- communicate both helpful and inaccurate information mm-hmm. like that stuff feels like a much bigger concern of the novel than yeah. the hey, these small institutions can really get wacky with their departments. Um, <laughs> but I expected it to be more of a critique of of that and a, and a deeper critique of like, why would... He's not uh, like this very shallow thing where it could inadvertently cause glorification to happen. That mm-hmm. that does not get explored in the book, I don't... Uh, at least my read of it. 
Sure. Um, which I think if you were writing this book and you came up with this premise today, you would certainly have to wrestle with. Um, and that's one of the things that keeps it kind of squarely in its time period. Sure. But I think a lot of the stuff around television and the distancing effect of viewing things on television, there's mm-hmm. one passage at the end of the first third where inexplicably Babette is on television okay. and they're all in the house because they're of drugs or because well, of the, no, the big news event or she is teaching her posture class at the local community center oh, and that's nice this you we learn that they sent a news crew just to do a feature on it or something but for whatever God, reason, can you, can you imagine can you, a newsroom <laughs> staff that well now? Jeez. Um, as like a public interest story. Yeah. But the the family didn't know that this was happening. So all of a sudden their mom's on TV. Like her face is filling <laughs> up the TV. Sure. And there's no sound in the broadcast, but the sound works on the other channels. So they're trying to get the sound to work and it doesn't work. And it's just so strange to them and so unexpected. It is and isn't her at the same time. Um, What is the quote that I found? Uh, It's something like they're like Babette was like being beamed into them or they're getting hit with like the protons and photons of her and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just like there is something. I don't know if I I still get kind of weirded out or excited when someone i know is on the television like it just has a power to it and i think it probably had an even more power 40 years ago than it does now when like mm-hmm. most stuff that's on television is also on youtube or whatever mm-hmm. um but this a lot of these feelings feel very fresh in this book or they were fresh to delillo when he started writing it and we've had 40 years of both serious and probably like lampoony takes on some of like if you just extract the take from like some of the takes from these scenes you just get some stand-up like you just get like it's it's a weird how commercials are just talking in your house all the time um (laughs) what's the deal with hitler (laughs) but like one it's like one in 50 comedians who are going to get out there and be like isn't it weird how TV just fills up the the hole in your soul that otherwise is filled with uh, unadulterated fear of death? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think that would have been rare in the eighties. I think that's kind that's of probably a little more commonplace. That's what that stand up's yeah. bread and butter right now. Is like, <laughs> let's get real about how scared we all are of dying all the time. I mean, yeah, that's what this book is, and it's it's about it's comedy now is about fear of death and cancel culture. Yeah. And sometimes they're both the same thing. That's true. Um, <laughs> the For folks who are coming to DeLillo by way of, well, of Wallace, I'll just say like this was a much sm- smaller book in scale than I expected, probably because it was so tied to Gladney's perspective. Like my experience with this type of fiction is something like, you know, Infinite Jest or zadie smith's like white teeth or something that feels a little bit more like bigger in scope Mm -hmm. um so maybe this would work for someone who bounces off stuff like that i don't know um but i don't know andrew i'm thinking of maybe going back to school 
take a class at the college on the hill. Yeah, Hitler studies. I think I'm, I know. I think I'm going to be an Elvis major. I think maybe a car crash. <laughs> maybe a car <laughs> crash minor. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna do if you're gonna do Hitler studies, then Oberlin is the is the place to do Jeez. that. <laughs> do my thesis on that cup with the cool art on it mm-hmm. with the spray paint mm-hmm. the jazz cup <laughs> jazz cup studies jazz cup studies <laughs> you could probably get away with doing like a big jazz cup as your as your comps oh if dang if you're an art now a jazz a cup big, installation piece yeah just like big like poster board jazz cup Hey, uh, any current college students listening, you're welcome. Have yeah. fun with your thesis. Have fun with your jazz cup. Uh, Andrew, thanks for making white noise with me this week. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And James, thank you for, for showing up and, and doing a little bit of work as well. Hey, thanks, James. Yeah, that's, I'm just happy to be here. I'm, I don't know how often I'll be around. Hopefully not. Very often, but hey, it's it's been cool hanging out with James, you two. Can I just you ask two, you two cool cats? James, can I just ask where are you from? Got, <laughs> there's like a you got a cool Susan or something in your accent. I just want to. I I think that's reductive, baby. Okay, great. All right, <laughs> let's get out of here. If you want to tell us where you think James is from, send us an email at overduepod at gmail dot com. Hit us up on social media at Twitter. And at facebook.com slash overdue pod. Thanks to Megan, Yvonne, Hannah, Eric, Christopher, Martha, Stephanie, Joshua, and many more for reaching out to us this past week. Thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme music. Andrew, folks want to know more about the show. Where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have links to Apple and Google in our RSS feed. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. We're anywhere you get podcasts. Up there on the website, we have links to the books that we have read and the ones we are going to read. You click those, you buy the book, you support your local independent bookseller, you support us, and you support your brain with a cool book. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be reading The First 15 Lives of Harry August by Claire North. James will hopefully have been banished to the minus zone by the time (laughs) we record that episode, but who knows? Um, I think that's it. Patreon.com slash Overdue Pod is also our Patreon project. Uh, You... Patreon people uh, support the show with book ideas. You support us in hosting. You buy our books for us. You'd send Henry to daycare half the time. Yeah, it's very nice. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a big 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 help in these unprecedented times. Can't wait for these times to become precedented again. Oh my god, I can't it's gonna wait. be real good. Give me another forty in, years to live in precedented times. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And until we hit you next time, cool cats, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.